Welcome to the Razor Show with the Athletics' Nick Underhill and Jeff Powell, plus three-time Super Bowl champion Matt Chatham. What's up, everybody? This is the Razor Show, uh, midweek edition, our first show of the week due to the Labor Day stuff. None of us are wearing white pants. We all put those in the closet for the fall. Uh, I am Jeff Howe with... Nick Underhill and Matt Chad. Oh, you almost got it. Got the got the extra D's in there per his request. Uh, we're sort of in a weird timeline with the the it's first a show. D. It's a double D. Yeah, we got the double D's going. Matt Chatham, uh, been working. I've been practicing since the last show. If you guys are in on the joke, hopefully you find that funny. If you're not, you just continuously think I'm an idiot. But we'll uh, we'll get this thing going. We're kind of gonna blend uh, the the reaction from the weekend roster stuff and try to spin it toward the season as much as we possibly can later in the week when we have our second show we're going to get more into the Steelers and certainly more into the start of the Patriots season uh but let's just start off with just uh, administrative announcement though since we get a lot of questions one of these podcasts is free on on Apple the other one you have to subscribe to the athletic the late week one is on there you got to be into our little wall garden that's you know there's a cost of admission um, theathletic.com slash the razor show 40% off you can get in you can hear both podcasts and, and stop asking us one's paid one is not do you know which one this is this is free this Hopefully. is the free one this is the free one and, and if you're sort of getting into the the tempo of the show and what you're going to get each week understand if you're on board for for free only god bless that's that's your choice uh, and that'll be the apple show early in the week Typically, you're only going to hear the kind of a show that's a game wrap show, right? Because we're going to be coming back quickly early in the week after a game has happened. Uh, if you're really interested in the stuff that, hey, previews the next show, that's typically what the second show each week will do. A little weird here, obviously, in a, in a, you know, in a, a game from four week one, so it won't feel quite that way. But if you're on for just free, you're going to get a game wrap. If you're on for both, you're going to get the whole story, which is the game wrap, and then also a preview of the upcoming opponent. Plus all of the amazing stuff that we write. So if you want to subscribe, jump onto my Robert Kraft oral history to uh, try to push that one over the edge. Subscribe through that story. It's from January. So you might have to do a little Googling or whatever, <laughs> but it would help me out a great deal. Anyway, uh, do you guys have any big takeaways from the weekend uh, in terms of the roster moves or anything like that? I mean, I'll let you start. The the biggest one for me was the trade of Duke Dawson and... I took a little bit of heat on Twitter because my take on it was that getting rid of him really was the smart move to make. You know, you aren't compounding a mistake. Okay, so the draft pick happened. He wasn't good. We've known for a year that that draft pick was bad. That can be bad, but the reaction to that is, I think, what matters. And getting rid of him and, and not keeping him around at the expense of uh, Gunnar Olszewski, who you want to keep, that's the right move to make. Now, doubling down because you have this investment in them and being like, well, we got to ride this out for two years because that's what everybody does and that's the smart thing to do and you got to see what happens. No, if you know, you know. Keon Crossan's better than Duke Dawson. Keon Crossan's gone too. So, you know, keeping him around just because you got the second round pick in him, it's a stupid thing to do. So I, I thought that was probably one of the smartest moves they made. Granted, that smart thing came from a very bad thing, but both things can be true. So uh, I'll... Uh... I might have been a burner account that was arguing with you online on this one. <laughs> All 
I'm, no, and I'm not. I'm not necessarily disagreeing that it. I actually am agreeing with you that it's the right move. I think that you have to move on, uh, and I like that you don't hold the draft status against uh, sort of you know driving the decision kind of deal. But I think Duke gets a kind of a hard a hard shot here, as if he were some sort of can't play guy. Uh, I felt like Razai Dowling kind of had that feel, like he got opportunities and, and failed. You know, it looked like at times he struggled with the football part. I think that the judgment on Duke Dawson comes a lot from you know when he was drafted, you're not seeing him in with some of the first and second groups. Ergo, he's not as good. I don't think that's what happened necessarily. I, I think you're unfortunate. I think, let's see, let's put it this way. You can go back a few, go back three rosters ago, go back seven rosters ago. You th- slot Duke Dawson in on those, and he's act- He's part of the second group. He's maybe even working it with the ones. I think part of his issue now is, hey, they drafted another guy, Jawan Williams, is better. It looks better. It looks like a better prospect. Uh, they also you know, hit on a veteran corner a year ago in Jason McCourty, and they want to keep him around. He was a huge part of it. I think part of what, paints the story is the context around it. The rest of the roster was extremely strong. I think it's one of the deepest rosters on the team. So yes, I agree that it's it's good to not be beholden to the draft status to keep him around. But I wouldn't say guy wasn't good enough, guy wouldn't be here. I think on a thinner defensive group that's more like a typical Patriots year, he's a guy that could help. I mean, I think uh, even watching that fourth preseason game, uh, I liked his versatility to be able to play free safety and corner. I don't think he's a hardcore just going to be a slot corner. I think he could easily be a guy like Tavon Wilson that goes another place, finds a role. I'm not calling him a star in the league, uh, but I don't think this is an in and out of the league in a, in, in a year kind of guy. So I, I don't know if that's necessarily really disagreeing with you or just saying, hey, man, I think context really drives this one. Yeah, no, and the context is fair, and I'm kind of talking through it through the prism of him being a second-round pick, which kind of contradicts my, my initial point is that, like, you got to step away from that once the pick happens. He is what he is. But, you know, as a second-round pick, you're thinking that a guy is a lock and he should be on the team. So – in that sense, he is kind of, you know, a disappointment. But overall, yeah, I, I think that you're right that on any other team, he probably makes the team. There were things during uh, OTAs and, and early in training camp where we were kind of talking him up a little bit. Like, it looked like he was turning the corner. And, you know, just on another team where there aren't six cornerbacks that are much better than him and obviously better than him, he's on the team. And, I mean, I think that's just kind of a, a commentary on just really how good they are at this position. And, you know, they get Duke and then they go out and find the J.C. Jackson and, you know, all of a sudden that makes it a lot harder for your second round pick to make the team. And then again, Keon Cross in that last preseason game, I thought he was just absolutely incredible. Special teams is incredible. There's not a place for him on the team. So yeah. Duke's just wrong place, wrong time. But yeah, if he went somewhere else and became a, a solid player, you know, throughout his career, like I'm not expecting him to be like, like just like you said, out of the league in a year. He's going to hang around for a while. He can play. He just he's just not good enough to play here. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of truth to be said. I mean, this doesn't have to be one sweeping hot take or anything like that. And I think you guys have hit on a lot of the important areas. Number one, I don't think it's debatable. They missed on the pick. You, you draft a guy in the second round, you expect him to contribute for you in some way, shape, or form, and he never stepped on the field for the Patriots. Missed his entire rookie season, was a healthy scratch over the last 11 games when he was on the active roster, including the playoffs, and then gets shipped out for a seventh-round pick. You can then spin that forward and say... Like Nick said, it's good to recognize the mistake. You don't lose somebody that could potentially have a contributing role for you this year, and you at least get something for him. I see why they wanted to trade him, because they had to send out some of those late-round picks over the final week of the preseason in order to restock their depth at offensive line, which was probably this time last week a major, major concern because there were so many unknowns, or at least the guys that we did know about in terms of backups weren't performing to the standard that we sort of expected them to do so, and that's why you saw Belichick completely turn over that group of backups. 
he Duke Dawson could and and likely will, uh, frankly, based on Belichick's pattern of finding defensive backs, especially cornerbacks, over the last half decade, go elsewhere, whether it's Denver or even if, you know, let's say it doesn't even work out there, he's probably going to have a good career. Look at what's happened with Justin Coleman, just got paid in Detroit. Cravon LeBlanc just got a contract extension in Philadelphia. Kenny Moore went from undrafted to getting a huge contract from the Colts. So keep the guys in-house. Malcolm Butler, uh, J.C. Jackson, like you mentioned, Keon Cross in a sixth rounder, if memory serves. I actually didn't like the Keon Cross in trade because I thought he was going to be a dynamite special teamer this year. But again, with uh, the notion that they were trying to bring in some of the picks that they had to send out for offensive linemen, I at least understood the method for trading him. You might look back at that in two, three years and say, I kind of wish the Patriots still had Keon Crossan. Maybe you have the same sort of thought about Duke Dawson. But again, if you keep spinning it forward, Belichick's track record of finding an undrafted or a low round cornerback in the next one, two, three years, he's probably going to keep hitting at that area because he's been so damn good at it and consistently good at it for at least the last half decade. Yeah, I think part of my... uh... It's definitely that little player voice in the back of my head that cringes a little bit about a mispick because I think it kind of just depends upon how you define a mispick. Like I've I've certainly been on teams and I'm not the name dropping guy. I don't like to go out and firebomb a guy that just wasn't good enough but was taken in a certain place. But I think you do know the difference between, hey, this guy was – this guy walked in the room, had a draft out of X, Y, or Z and – couple practices in everyone's looking at each other going what the hell like you know what I mean and that that has happened I mean that's happened in in New England that's happened in New York probably more times in New York than New England but the point is I I certainly hold those guys in a and an organization knows it too like okay wait a minute that's you know all those things we saw on tape all those things we saw at the combine they're not translating here you know that's a different kind of player than he can play but he's not in our best six you know, and I think that's so. Let's put it this way: they, you miss on the pick, but you missed on the pick because you pushed him out, pushed him out the door by virtue of hitting on an undrafted guy. If you hadn't hit on J.C. Jackson, he's still here. You know, if you hadn't hit on Keon Gross in the seventh, it's even easier to hang on to him. And then thereby, that player is identical player, but you need him more. So you needing him more doesn't really change who he is. Which again, it, probably this is probably a little bit of sensitivity to, you know, a, a player who's like, damn, I didn't do anything different than I had, and I'm still not here. I'm still the same guy. So it's. But there are those guys out there that are drafted to maybe be a receiver and can't run the routes, can't catch a ball. It's like, oh, failing, you know, that kind of thing. Defensive back that just gets smoked, play and play out, play and play out. Uh, but there are situations where, hey, you know, we – well, I'll put it, I'll go about it this way. Belichick has really stressed, this, stressed to us over the years that draft status is simply the cost of acquisition. And a lot of that is driven by – uh, the perception of the guy, uh, the, pers- uh, the the supply and demand notion, you know, the f- the fact that the guy had you know relatively heavy s- uh, scout following throughout his collegiate career, went to a big school, uh, you know, and that's why a guy like J.C. Jackson is available then, not because of what Bill necessarily thinks he's going to do for him. No different really than Malcolm. You want though in those situations, Malcolm Butler, to see those guys in house and figure out that they can do it, but. The reason you're taking him in, not the first. The first is a different world. We completely get that. Those are meant to be sort of the sure things. But the reason you're taking a guy when you are maybe in the late second round when they generally draft with their twos or, you know, or the threes or whatever is because of your concern that there's people with similar interest in that player, not because you necessarily protect, 
project them to be a 10-year guy. I think David Andrews is a perfect example. You were able to take them in because you didn't you're you're basically playing upon the need you think other people will place on him. Will he be available? Yes. Does that mean that I don't think when I took him as an undrafted because a guy that played that many snaps at a place like Georgia and really did well, I still think at that point as an undrafted guy, they could have easily projected him to be an eight or 10-year player. So it's, it's really, I, I don't know, I know I'm parsing and making a, an 11-minute segment out of Duke Dawson, but I think those things are th- th- pretty important when we dig through it. So uh, Nick's got one sort of final on this, and we'll transition to another position group. Yeah, and just I, I think the last point on cornerback, too, is that a second-round cornerback isn't the same as, say, like a second-round uh, tight end. The positional value there, there's guys getting drafted higher than they would have. So a guy that you're taking with the 60th pick or whatever it is late in the second round, that might be like a fourth round tight end. So I, I do think that you kind of got to look at it through through that prism. And the point you make about like kind of looking at it as a full pot is, is pretty interesting. And we can probably talk about that next year heading up to the draft or something because we don't we could probably spend a half hour on that. But with the way they do acquire these cornerbacks and their scouting, and it's obviously a spot where I think they have an edge over the rest of the league. Maybe you do kind of just look at it as a whole pot, and if your pot's filling up to where you have seven guys, and Duke Dawson is the one that gets you know boiled over the edge, maybe it's not the biggest deal in the world. And it is kind of hard to get a little bit worked up over the Patriots draft misses when you know they're in the Super Bowl every single year. So I don't want to sound like a homer saying that. I'm from Pennsylvania, so before you you know call me a honk, know that like that's not a homer a point. It's just the truth. Like go ahead and like people are so pissed off about Duke. Oh, the second round pick, like. What does it change? Like, does it affect the organization at all? I don't think so. So I guess moving on, the, the one I would like to get your guys' take on is like, let's let's just flip this. The most surprising guy that is on the team right now. It, it is. When you say most surprising, like that you think might be a little controversial that he's there or yeah, that... Just someone you thought that, that wasn't going to make that end of it. Is there any, are there any surprises in, in well, that Well, this is a positive surprise uh, for me. I, I think we've seen this. I'm going to go with Shalit Calhoun. I'm going to go with, and the reason I say that is I, when you have a guy, and I liked him a lot. I mean, I, I go back to my Twitter feed from, uh, I think when we were in Detroit was when I really started to watch that guy. I was like, dude, he's winning like every snap in one-on-ones. He's he's killing people in team period. He looked really good in the couple preseason games he got in, in there for. And I started thinking, wow, they keep rolling him out there with the ones. And uh, they were putting him and Derek Rivers on the field together uh, at times where Calvinoy was getting a little lighter workload and stuff like that. The reason I call it a surprise is not because of the quality of work he put in. He put in quality work. I just started to look at that group and worry for him that they were so incredibly deep and that his availability wasn't you know what you would hope it'd be for the last couple of weeks. So it's not on that I don't think he can put it. I'm thrilled that, the, that he made the roster because he's one of the most disruptive pass rushers they have. Uh, he's a name you don't know. Uh, he's a guy that could easily go out there and have a much bigger role, I think, in the right place. And it's like, wow, great that they latched on. But when you started looking at sort of the, the cut lines, I know you guys do that through columns and stuff like that and try to, to wean it down to the 53. That was was a tough one to keep, but but I'm, I'm I'm really glad they did. I think the difficult part gets into, and I actually covered this in my my piece this week for the Athletic, where I was talking about the backerhood, and you've obviously I think a lot of Patriots fans have heard that phrase used. Brewski uses it a lot. Willie uses it a lot. Um, you know, it's just a phrase that we always use to to refer to sort of a fraternity type thing we have with backers, and you, you'll you'll meet you know I'll see Ninkovich now and be like backerhood. You know, like we, it's just like a, a corny phrase that we all came up with, but it means something to us. And one of the things that I, I I was a little uh, that I really liked about this particular group is how incredibly deep it is. We're back to the time where you know there's eight there's eight linebackers on the on the roster, and we've had gone a couple of years here where the the linebacker roster numbers were pretty 
pretty tightened because, you know, it's more nickel stuff. So you lose a guy. Sometimes you lose two. It's an eight-man linebacker roster, which is a lot like the 2000 stuff. And the reason I think the Shalit Calhoun is surprising and awful helpful from a game plan standpoint, and it was what I was kind of writing about in that particular column, is if you were the right tackle uh, for the, the Steelers going into this week, uh, through preseason, uh, and these are camp practices, not just preseason games, I've got six guys, six different human beings who have rushed on the left side through these, inter, uh, through the, the practices with the Titans and Lions, through the preseason game snaps. And I can't necessarily tell you that if Bill brings all of them active, if you're that right tackle, that you'd really have a great beat on who you're going to be working against. So I think that makes him really, really dangerous because, shoot, Kyle Van Noy and Hightower are ends as much as they're inside linebackers in this defense from time to time. Well, I think Calhoun is an interesting point because when you look at, like, he was a good player in college, and that's why he was a third-round pick. I, I think a high third-round pick, but Oakland didn't know how to use him. And we've seen that story before with Kyle Van Noy. The Patriots bring him in, or Belichick brings him in, and knows how to use him. You know, a phrase that is is commonly thrown around is a put, Belichick puts his areas in a position of strength. So he is going to highlight ways, even if it's only for, let's call it 15 snaps a game, or maybe it becomes 35, 40 snaps a game. Belichick is at least going to use this guy and tell him to do what he does well, and you know we'll see how the role sort of develops. I'm going to flip it to Obi Melifonwu because... And, you know, we're talking about Calhoun and Melifonwu. These are two guys who did miss some time at the end of the preseason. And just sort of reading between the lines, you never know if one of those guys might, you know, might end up on like short-term IR or something along those lines. So maybe that was part of why they carried them into the, the opening week roster to, to kind of shelve them for a couple months or whatever. It could be tactical, try to play some games with the Steelers to get in their heads, which really isn't that difficult. I mean, Scott Zolak has literally done it with Mike Tomlin's headset during a game. So, but you, you talk about Melifonwu. Uh, that was a guy that, you know, we saw it at times, and then he kind of went down for a little bit with an undisclosed injury the last couple of weeks of the preseason in camp. And you weren't, I, I was kind of surprised that when they used him in those safety reps, a lot of them were free safety reps. I mean, you look at the body type, 6'4", right. I think 225. I thought he was going to be an in-the-box guy. And, and that wasn't how they used him. So my whole, like, asterisk with Melifonwu the last few months has been, all right, we know he has a unique body type. I mean, shoot, we'll just talk about the Raiders not knowing how to use a guy. Melifonwu was a freak coming out of UConn, a physical freak with with a ton of attributes, and you just didn't know exactly how it would translate to the NFL. The Raiders have proven they don't know how to help guys translate to the NFL. Bill Belichick has proven that he does. So whether we saw it at practice or not, I always thought that was a guy who just sort of was in his own bubble in that if Belichick looks at him and says, you know what? Got a stacked safety depth chart right now. You know who the, the top three are. Terrence Brooks had a hell of a summer, so he's your fourth. You've got a special teamer in Nate Ebner. Who knows what the playing time was going to be for a guy like Melifonwu. But if Belichick looks at Melifonwu and says, I like the development. I, I like what I'm seeing behind closed doors. I like the potential. You know what? Maybe he doesn't have a major role in 2019, but let's spin it forward to 2020. Let's look at his long-term potential. This is a guy that they could continue to work with and see a starter potential or whatever, then, you know, maybe that's why they kept him around. One quick thing on, uh, on, uh, on Obi, it's, it, these are sort of, uh, 
it's sort of a fine line to walk because you're in a really uncomfortable position as a player, hoping like hell you make a roster, going home to your wife or girlfriend or parents or buddies or whatever, and, you know, really sort of, I don't know, calculating, doing sort of the roster mark-offs, who's in, who's out kind of thing, and what's my path to, to accomplishing this. Now, obviously, I'm talking about the bottom half, right? You know, your, your starters kind of know they're there unless they have a number that's going to push them off because I'm big cap jump or something like that. And usually that stuff happens before camp anyway. If you get to camp, they're kind of expecting you'll be there uh, or unless there's some sort of late-hour trade. But with a guy like Obi, you know, I think he was helped quite a bit by Brandon King getting injured. And that's, you know, you don't like to say that, you know, as a player, you don't, you certainly don't go, yeah, you, you know, in your head, but there is a reality part to it that it is kind of, yeah, like the path, you know, again, it's let's like, a, be, let's be real. it's, yeah. Let's be, yeah, it's like, it's a feeling you don't want to express. It's certainly not something that you're going to show. Um, but you do understand that it creates an opportunity. You do. And it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it feels perverse to even talk about it that way, but I mean, I can go throughout my career and, and look at different in every guy that played could, uh, look at dirt, certain situations that open doors and help things happen. I mean, shoot, Tom Brady, his first door that opened was a major injury to a, to a franchise quarterback. And that's just the reality of how the NFL works. And I think, I look at Obi and I say, kind of like what Jeff is saying, rare body type, rare physical skill set. Um, but I don't know if we look down here eight or ten years from now and he's anyone's strong safety necessarily. Um, I think he could be a Barcavius Mengo, which isn't a bad career. But I think where people will look on it and say, oh. traded for Jadavion Clowney. Yes, straight up. <laughs> So, hey, things are going well. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, I, again, I think there's, again, that's kind of the conversation with, w- that we were doing with Nick earlier about, you know, draft status and the expectation that comes with it. I think Obi blew up, you know, blew the top off of the combine with his broad jump and all that kind of stuff. And and I, I worked a lot of UConn, UConn games for ESPN back, in, back in, in his career and saw him play several times. And you say, yeah, he's, he's rare and different, but is he an every-down player? We don't know that. And I think there is sort of that, temptation to to sort of paint it that they failed if the role doesn't fit the draft status necessarily with like games logged and games started. I think Obi would be a really nice piece on a roster as the third safety and a killer special teams guy and maybe a matchup guy against tight ends if you want to use them eventually. And that's not a failure. I think it's, you know, but I, it, it, you're not going to have the max earnings that another guy will with a different kind of role than that. But I'm starting to feel like, hey, that's what he could do. And that's a pretty good thing for this particular roster. Yeah, I, I would agree. He, he was my my biggest surprise on the team too, and I I kind of thought he was really in trouble that last game when we saw Juwan Williams kind of doing a lot of the things that I thought Obi would be doing with that versatility, matching up on tight ends, playing deep safety, being able to go in the box a little bit. But I don't think we need to belabor the point. We we've kind of covered that extensively. So I think just spinning it forward, I, I think the quarterback decision was, was the other really. Uh, Maybe I don't want to say surprising thing. You know, I think everyone kind of thought that Stidham maybe had a chance to to knock him off the roster. But I, I think all of us here were in agreement that something happens to Tom Brady that the number one choice out of those guys, if you had to go a game or two, and you want to keep the season afloat and you want to feel good about it, I think that choice would have been Brian Hoyer. And you know, I'm not sure based on some of the things that that we've heard that that they necessarily saw it differently. They thought maybe they could have got this guy back, but you know, now they're in this situation and and just kind of you know. If somebody goes down, do you, do you guys do you guys feel confident that that Stidham can keep the season going? I read an amazing article not too long ago, written by I can't remember the name, but uh, my favorite writer, no doubt, uh, who oh, who wrote that. 
Yeah, uh, it was about uh, back shoulder fades. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> about how Jared Stidham has the tools to be a franchise quarterback. And look, I'm just going to, joking but sort of sincere, I mean, this was something we hit on last week. I thought if Stidham got a chance in the preseason, not that this was realistic, if Stidham got a chance to work behind that starting offensive line, which is really damn good, uh, I thought that he would have been able to mitigate a lot of the mistakes that he made over the course of the preseason. Not There weren't a lot, but there were a lot of close calls. Certainly there was an interception when he got hit in the, uh, hit from behind. There was a, uh, a lost fumble when I think it was Dan Skipper who blew a block, and then you know he got hit Two from behind. Two drop pick sixes! There, there were, there were, there were. Uh, but as Matt hates to say, the scorebook shows that they were just incompletions. Uh, but I think, again, Stidham showed enough that if Brady goes down, if he does miss any time, I'd, I'd be extremely excited to see what he can do with all the tools around him in that starting offense. A million times more exciting if there's an injury. Uh, no offense to Brian Hoyer, but like I'm much, much rather, just as, as a fan of football, my curiosity, if there was an injury, seeing Stidham in there with all those guys, much better game to cover, much better game to watch. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that, that it's a, a – a lost cause if he goes in there and plays the game. I just think that if you're making a bet and, and it's just like, you know, you got this team on the cusp and there is an injury for me, the, the safer option is Brian Horry. The higher upside is probably Jarrett Stidham. But if, if I'm trying to go two games and I got to pick between them and, and it's just keep the season afloat, it's Brian Hoyer for me. Yeah. And I think that's, that's sort of where this gets into the weeds a little bit. And, you know, you just kind of understand how transactions happen. You know, Brian was, was told he was coming back week two or week three. You can't control when that is. The organization wants to sort of, uh, uh, you know, gamble a bit. They're clearly exposing themselves in the event that someone swoops in just like Andy did. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, th- that happened. So I, I think what the organization, I think the, the tarot card reading here is basically that the organization felt, comfortable enough to ex- to expose himself for a week or two of the season with Stidham, not Hoyer, but they certainly didn't feel that way for the entire year. But then when the Andrew Luck thing comes in and you, you know, you get a multi-year thing, thank God for Brian. I mean, good for him and his family, that kind of thing. And they're going to lock him up uh, for something that usually qu- quarterbacks of his age don't get the long-term deal. I mean, you look down to sort of the list of quarterbacks that were uh, log, and this, this happens every year. You, you, when I'm ca- calling games and you open up the, the you know, the, the, the game book or whatever for another group, uh, for another team, and you're like, Whoa, whoa, did you plan that? Yeah, oh, whoopsie, whoopsie. Um, what, a, what a second-class organization. <laughs> <laughs> but when you when you open up the book and you say, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize Jake, Hello- Jake DeLome had been here for six years. You know, that kind of thing. Like, that's kind of that spot where usually those quarterbacks that were had been in the spotlight much more, and then they slide into a very reliable organization loves you. They love the stability you bring. They love the way you operate behind the scenes. They love what they can give you, as you kind of mentioned, Jeff and Nick, for a week or two in case of a break glass kind of spot. Um, you kind of forget that those guys are out there. And Brian, I think, has a great opportunity here to slide into that kind of role, uh, do it for 10 years if you wanted to. I mean, it just depends on how long his body lasts. But that's a really, really stable role. And if people trust you, like the Josh McCown, like people just love them in that role. And you know, I think Brian brings a lot of that intangible stuff and can get it done in a few weeks stretch uh, nobody's gonna hire him and he I would he'd probably acknowledge it as much as your new franchise guy at this point and we get that uh, but he brings a whole hell of a lot to the table and I think the Patriots knew that as well but they just exposed him and something happened I, I wanted to hit on uh, one guy that popped out to my you know I, when we were making the surprise oh I'm sorry before, before we 
where you oh. close the book on the quarterbacks. Do a quarterback quote. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to hit on two quick Hoyer points. Number one, the thing that I hate to see uh, is that Hoyer in the biggest game of his career just choked in that Texans playoff game. I mean, I talked to Hoyer for – I mean, I've talked to Hoyer a lot over the last 10, 11 years. I mean, not as much when he left – uh, and went to different teams. But when he came back, I had a really good conversation with him for like 20, 25 minutes. And, and that Texans playoff game when they lost, I think it was 30 to nothing, came up. He was like, I played the worst game of my life. And it was just everything went wrong. That game should not define who Brian Hoyer is. If you want to define the guy by a very short stretch of time, he's the only guy. I mean, he was he had a winning record with the Browns. When the Browns Good were, teams, yes. I mean, the Browns, those Browns teams could not have beaten Alabama, Pro, you know, <laughs> so, and then when they parted with him, the Browns went, I think it was like four and 42 in the remaining, the next like four years without him. So he did some miracle work in Cleveland. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the backup role. I mean, I think the Hasselbacks are, are probably still all playing in the league right now. They all have walkers and canes and everything like that, and they're probably holding out until their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids are able to come in and start in front of them. But again, like Hoyer made, I looked it up the other day, he made, I think, like $15.7 million in his career up until this year. A lot of those contracts were to go in and compete for a starting job. He's probably going to trump the, that amount of money just as a backup, assuming he gets one or two more contracts beyond this cold steel. Yeah, and I think that's a cool thing that you like to see for a player when you know that they've grinded. Is that the past tense of they've ground? <laughs> they've been they've been grinding uh, anyway over all these years. <laughs> uh, you know, for for a year over year, it's a lot of stress. It's moving families, and when you sort of slide into that kind of role. Uh, and then you finally see a guy get a little bit of stability. It might only be two years of stability. It might be three, but it's enough to move your kids with you and kind of set you up. Uh, and by the way, I just want to put a note out here to Don and Betsy Hasselback. That was Jeff who made the joke about your kids. <laughs> Go to church with these guys. We're good, really good people. <laughs> anyway, so... I'm sure they're, they're fantastic. They're fantastic people. people. Uh, you know what? They've made a lot more money over their careers than me. So there you go. There you go. Um, I, I just was sliding through here as we were sort of giving our little soapbox speeches about different players to a name that and I do this every year, you have a draft class happen, you start to focus on three or four of the people in the draft class, the stories, the narratives around the guy build up, we're, as, we're a big part of that. We start to focus on guys we think people will be more interested in, we talk them up, and you kind of forget and the other guys out there. And Byron Cowart was one of those guys for me where I recall I'm sitting with you guys on the hill, and I've had conversations with Rochi, who we're calling the preseason games with as well, and having side conversations. I probably said this on multiple occasions. Has that guy done anything? You know, like little stupid comments, like things about, hey, buddy, that's just more my own fault for not noticing. But I felt like there was a three- or four-week span there where Byron Cowart hadn't done anything that I noticed, which doesn't mean that if on film review of a scout or a head coach who's really watching what they're doing down, 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 out and trying to figure out if they can play in the league – that they may have been doing many good things, and I didn't notice. What helped us all notice the kid was when he trucked the guard against the Titans, Robert put him, Saffold. yeah, put Saffold on his back, and that's a good player. Walked right over him, affected a play, and went, "Holy shit, what's that guy been doing?" Oh, Byron Cowart's good, but it's it's I'm as big of a, a culprit as anyone in this of not noticing a guy unless he flashes or whatever the phrase is. And I thought Coward was one of those guys. That play made me watch him. And then once I watched more, 
oh, he's doing a really good job. So I think he's one of those guys that might end up having like a Mike Wright kind of career. You know, like he's a strong bull kind of power rusher, uh, a little bit versatile enough to pop in and out. He's not going to be a Vince over the nose kind of guy, but uh, a lot of four-man line stuff where you really need push out of the two tackles. And it got a little bit, got a little something to him and is strong like bull. I mean, Cowart might be that guy. I, I really liked what I saw once I started paying better attention. I think his slow start makes sense, too, because at Maryland, he did not rush the passer much. So I think coming in that there was probably early on some teaching of technique and figuring out, you know, best practices and how to win there. And I think just as we went along, we kind of did see it pick up a little bit. Jeff mentioned him a couple of times later in camp in the practice notes. But yeah, definitely early on, he was kind of like this invisible man a little bit. And it's, you know, he came in with all this potential and it, it never worked out before. And I think, you know, maybe now that he's getting some of that coaching and it's all coming together and that physical talent with the mental and it just kind of meshed right at that perfect point in the preseason. And he really was a beast in, in a quick riser. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what he does throughout the season, too. I mean, he, he's just been really, really good. And if that progress continues, I don't think it's, it's you know, fictional. I think that there's definitely a role that he can have this year. And I, I expect him to contribute. Yeah, I mean, you just the other thing to be fair with, uh, Cowart, when the pads came on, also suffered a minor injury. So he yeah. missed about a week. Mm-hmm. So then he had to come back, reacclimate himself a little bit. And then Nick made a great point. He was misused at Maryland. I think that was a huge knock against the Maryland program and, and how they might have uh, just, again, mismanaged him and his what carried over into the draft, his stock. This is a guy who was a number one recruit coming out of high school, had to – did he start at Auburn? I believe it was. Yeah. Had to transfer. So again, this is a guy who just hasn't had a chance to to develop a lot of consistency over some key growth years, and then really just started to boom when he got healthy back with the Patriots in the summer. One way I wanted to sort of close out this uh, this big roster talk is to to I think it's always important to contrast who's there and who's not relative to a season ago. Yes, the defending champs. Yes, they're going to come back here on week one and drop a banner. And it's always a little bit uncomfortable when it's, you know, you weren't a part of that team, but you're running out there going, yeah, you know, like, you know, I remember that when we would do the, I think it was the Raiders game where we dropped the banner and you're looking up and down your sideline and there's, you know, 15, 17, 18 other guys on this new 53 that weren't a part of that, but you're all getting sort of the adulation for that day. And I, I what I wanted to do is just sort of rifle through the names quickly uh, with you guys. Hey, this is the 2019 Patriots team, a lot of which are a part of last year's group. We got a lot of new faces and then using those new faces, just sort of a quick two or three minute point from each of you on how you think sort of the the general overall face over the course of four and a half months will change with these new bodies relative to the one from the year before. But let's kind of touch on all these. I mean, obviously, Demarius Thomas is here. I mean, we know that's a big difference. Josh Gordon, we presume you'll get a full season out of him, but we never know that. Uh, But it's good to have him. And now it's Gunnar Osheski. Gunnar is an entirely different kind of returner first six receiver as a roster spot, which I don't think that that didn't exist a year ago. I mean, there wasn't a, I mean, we were, we were coming through uh, thinking maybe Cyrus Jones was going to get the, you know, punt return, kick return job a year ago coming out of last year's camp. So uh, I think it's unique that that role exists on the roster that maybe didn't in years before Corey Cunningham, uh, Illuminor. Am I getting that name right? Those yeah, are the two, there we go. Those are the two new names, uh, veteran backup types as part of the offensive line, Russell Bodine, 
Illumithnor. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. We we had one big chance at that on the broadcast, and and poor Dan Roach, who generally knocks it out of the park, but he was coaching me up on. Here's how you say it. Here's how you say it. It's so easy, Matt. Don't read it. Say it. Don't read it. Say it. And then it got his opportunity to say it, and he blew it. Hi, Dan. There we go. Uh, but now we've got uh, we, we've got Damian Harris, uh, an additional back on the roster as well. Chase Winovich, great depth there as another pass rusher. Um, Byron Coward, who as we just mentioned, uh, you come back with Jamie Collins, which is a crazy new addition of athleticism, which you could call him part of the first wave or second wave of those those three four groups. But man, that's another really good body to have there. Shalik Calhoun, we always already touched on. Um, then you also add in what's the last one? Obi and Terrence Brooks. Terrence Brooks is an Another big change-up uh, addition to the back end could possibly be a rotation guy, but also a difference guy on the on the special teams has been a good special teams guy as well. So Juwan Williams there is also the additional corner. So I think it's you know we're back to that spot of hey it is still the Patriots are still wearing the same logo it's still Bill over there and and, and Mr. Kraft owning the team but this one's got a little different wrinkle to it than a year ago's group. Just uh, briefly from the two of you, what sort of uh, either like or don't like about the different makeup here and the potential that this group could have. I'll go back to the secondary. I mean, I think uh, Michael Bennett's a guy that he's not in the secondary, but he was a guy I was initially thinking about uh, using for this point, but I'm going to shift it back to Joan Williams had an outstanding preseason. Really? Yeah. I mean, f- had flourished down the, the entire preseason. Uh, I think quarterbacks were like one of 10 when throwing at him. I mean, that's, those are Stefan Gilmore's numbers and obviously it's not the same type of type of competition, but I think they're five deep right now, a cornerback and Belichick is going to find a way to use all five of them. You know, Williams might not get the same snap count as a guy like Jason McCourty or even John Jones or, or JC Jackson, but you're going to see him come up. He's going to have a role because that's what Belichick does. I mean, if you practice well, if you perform well, you are going to have a chance to see the field. Terrence Brooks, another one, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here because he can play in the box. He has really good closing speed. He's a terrific tackler. I wonder if they're going to use him because if, if Chung ever went down last year, missed a handful of plays or he missed one game with a concussion, uh, surprisingly didn't miss any time despite having a torn rotator cuff over the last couple months of the season. But let's say Chung goes down. You usually saw Devin McCourty slide up into the box and sort of take his spot. I wonder if, let's say a similar scenario arises where Chung has to miss a few plays. If maybe they're just trying to preserve McCourty by taking away some of those impact hits to, you know, keep him fresher down the stretch. He played the best football quite possibly of his career down the stretch uh, last season. I think quarterbacks were like, not that free safeties are in coverage quite a bit, but quarterbacks were 0 of 7 when targeting McCourty during their five game winning streak to close the year. He was phenomenal. He was getting his hands on passes and uh, the work that he did in terms of the pre-snap communication, especially against Kansas City and then the Rams, you know, helping guys like John Jones and even Keon Crossan uh, was phenomenal. But again, I'm just thinking out loud, I wonder if Brooks is going to help preserve or even prolong Devin McCourty's career, whether it's for this year or, or even a couple more beyond that. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of take this a, a different way because I feel like we, we kind of know a lot about this team and Jeff kind of covered the only unknowns or, or the only wrinkles on, on the defense. So I, I would say 
just for me, like the thing I'm most curious and excited to see, I think on the team is just the wide receivers. And I thought the stuff that we saw in the last preseason game from Demarius Thomas was, was very exciting. Seven catches, eight targets, maybe not a separation monster, but I don't think that's what you were expecting at this point in his career. And if you go back and watch his plays last year, you know, he wasn't running away from people, but he had probably 15 catches with a cornerback a half a yard away from him. And I think that's kind of the same thing we saw in that first preseason game is that those tight window catches, he's going to be able to make them. And I think that really helps, uh, you know, Tom Brady, just knowing that he kind of has another security blanket that can be thrown open and, and maybe contort his body and make catches when he doesn't really look open. So I think that's going to help a lot. I'm a little, you know, I, I was hoping the Josh Gordon performance would have been a little bit better in that game. I think you saw the rust and it's going to knock off, but is it going to be knocked all the way off by Sunday night? I think that that's kind of one question there, but even if it's not, I, th I think if Thomas plays the way he played and you get Edelman playing that they're probably going to be fine there until Gordon gets all the way up to speed. The one thing that's really weird to me, just looking at the offensive line depth chart, we don't know anything beyond the starters. Haven't seen any of these guys. Uh, so if there's an injury, is Corey Cunningham going to go in and hold it down? Is Illuminar going to be good? Bodon? Like, I don't know anything about these guys, and it's really weird to just have half this position group a complete unknown. Nick, get out of my head. Get out of my head, Nick. That's that's literally how I was going to close it because I can look at most of these groups and say there are enough about them that I know. Defensive backs loaded, few new faces, but we know a lot about a lot of the guys that will have big roles. You can say the same about the linebackers with that. Defensive line, by and large, we've seen most of them play. There are some new pieces. I forgot to mention Michael Bennett and Jacoby Myers. There's a couple other new faces when I was running through the list. So there are several there. Matt Lacoste, I mean, Ryan Izzo. Geez, these guys are all new on the roster, and I, I skipped over those. So when you talk about the offensive line, I think that's kind of the intriguing thing here. And it may take several weeks. You know, it, it, we don't know how this team is going to do in September every year. And it certainly doesn't paint what happens or doesn't happen in January or February. But there is a scenario here, a very likely one, uh, because it's just professional football. People get nicked up that we know who the starting five are and we know – what the five of them can do, presumably together, it'll be quite good. Uh, but if anyone misses a rep, you are going to have someone on the field who's never actually had the Patriots uniform on and taken a live play. I mean, that's that's three people. Yes, Bodine is a vet. Yes, uh, you know, Luminor and, and Cunningham have been in the league for a little bit, but none of them have it done here. It's a tremendous stress on Scar, and uh, Dante Skarnacki is the best. We all get that. But it's not easy. You know, you, you want to have a little time to work a guy and sort of form them into what you want to be, coaching them up on your technique and sometimes it doesn't happen in a week or two so give the guy a little breath or a little little room here to to do his gig I think he'll get him to speed don't you can't expect it to be it that way on week one the other portion where the offensive line comes into play here and, and I think this is going to be one of the more interesting week one actives that I recall because all those eight linebackers I talked about I don't know if it's all eight or if it's five of them or what it's going to be. I think with the offensive line, you know, it won't be Bodine, Illuminor, and Cunningham all eight. I don't think eight will be up. I presume it'll be seven, maybe seven, right? So save it, save it for Friday. We'll save that for the Friday show. But the, what I'm saying here is where it comes into play with the tight ends, right? Because you don't if that extra tackle or guard can also be an edge blocking personality, and we just haven't seen him do that that sort of soaks up another thing, uh, another ability uh, that these guys have. So um, it's just a, a different way to fashion a roster, and we'll figure that all out as it goes. But that's going to conclude this particular show. Hopefully you get a sense of uh, you know what we feel this roster can do over the course of a year. We'll check back on ourselves and call ourselves out if we blow it. And 
blowing it's what this whole thing's about being intellectually honest here and we fuck shit up but thank you for listening to the razor show uh that was jeff howes over there doing a, a gesture with his mouth and his thumb and the side of his cheek i don't i'm not exactly sure what that you know kids may know i'll ask the middle school I, my, my, <laughs> And, and Nick Underhill on the other side of the... We're off the rails, folks. That was The Razor Show.